This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. As you may be aware, the focus of brain health has become more important in the field of medicine. Not only are we seeing an uptick in disorders such as autism spectrum disorders and ADHD, we are also experiencing a population that is living longer. Due to modern medicine, lifespan is increasing, however that might be coupled with declining cognitive function and increased stroke risk as we get older. Understanding neuroinflammation, which is the underpinning of what drives brain disorders, is important if we are going to be able to solve brain dysfunctions. In today's episode, I welcome on a legend in the functional medicine and regenerative medicine space. Jim Laval. He has a decorated background in this profession, his unique training in the field of pharmacy, botany, nutrition, and naturopathy, and over 40 years of clinical and teaching experience has led him to have a firm grasp of how to help people deal with chronic inflammatory conditions. I think you'll quickly notice that Jim is beyond exceptional at what he does. He is the author of over 20 books. You can find more about him on his website, jimlaval.com. That's J-I-M-L-A-V-A-L-L-E.com. In this episode, we go into the topic of metflammation, specifically neuroinflammation. This is what happens when the brain is upregulated, and as they say, the brain is on fire. This takes place in conditions such as ADHD, Alzheimer's disease, autism, anxiety, and many other disorders. Please accept my apologies for the quality of this recording as I recently moved and am getting adjusted to my new space and recording atmosphere. I also want to announce that uh, next Wednesday, July 7th, 2021 at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I will be recording an after-hour show discussion on the new Green Room app on Spotify. You can download the Green Room app on your mobile device. Find me at that time at the user handle at Adam50, so that's Adam and the number 50. We'll discuss neuroinflammation and this episode. All are invited. So without further ado, I welcome you to our conversation. We'll join the episode in session. Um, I'm really delighted to welcome on my guest today, Jim Laval, nice to nice to meet you and nice to have you on with us. It's great to be on. Looking forward to this. We've worked hard at getting this together. We have. I, I think uh, I really appreciate your flexibility. I know you're extremely busy, um, and uh, thank you for working with me to to make this happen. Sure. So um, I think just to kind of set up our conversation today, we are going to speak about a topic that is top of mind, you know, in, in a lot of circles right now, which is neuroinflammation. It just is, 
a topic that affects so many people. And um, so it's going to be a very interesting topic to learn um, from you um, and your unique background. I always like to speak with people who have a different background than me um, because it just brings so much more richness to the conversation. Great. Yeah, it's a great topic. Why don't we sort of get to know you a little bit? I'd love to hear like the moment uh, that you sort of entered into regenerative medicine and functional medicine, but what, how did that come about? Wow, well, that was 1983, actually. So I have been doing this work now since, really full time since about 1985. Um, I was bodybuilding, I was going through pharmacy school, pushing myself hard, you know, won this national qualifier, uh, and I felt like crap. <laughs> I felt terrible. And uh, I was graduated out of school, and I, I went to a, a chiropractic doc who was doing a lot of nutritional work because my cousins actually were importing dietary supplements and homeopathic medicines from Germany via the Soroyal Group and the Reckwig Group. And so I talked to them and they referred me over to this guy. And I'm like this really smart kind of young pharmacist, you know, just graduated, you know, I really, and the pharmacy school I went to was actually founded by Lloyd brothers. So we had a rich history. I took, I took botanical medicine. So I took botany courses. I, you know, I took compounding, took or, organic medicinal chemistry. So I was kind of into it anyway, but I went to this doc, he put me on a program and it changed my life. I mean, I felt incredible. Incredible. I mean, I woke up and literally I lasted in the behind the pharmacy counter about, I don't know, maybe a year. And I, I just made the decision that I wanted to do this work of really helping people to figure out what they needed to take to maintain their best health possible. And uh, that set me on that path. And, you know, 22 books, four databases, you know, 16 ebooks later and, and probably had the largest clinic in the country doing this work back in Cincinnati, um, I'm still passionate about it because I think we still have so much to learn about how we can help people to really unravel the complexity of the troubles they get into with their health. So it was really a personal journey. I mean, I wasn't feeling well and, and uh, reached out to feel better, just like all of us do. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then on your, you know, sort of journey with that, did you come across any teachers that really res you resonated with or any books or um, sure. sort of a moment where you, you kind of connected with someone who, you know, that really resonated well, with? I had two mentors who have uh, passed uh, since. Uh, one was uh, Dr. David Poland, who was that chiropractor who I ended up working with. Mm -hmm. And we would process 600 people a week doing personalized plans mm -hmm. in his practice. So mm -hmm. I cut my teeth and one of the biggest practices in the country. And then my biggest influence was probably Dr. Alexander Wood, hmm. who was the founder of the Ontario College of Naturopathic Medicine. And so I would go up to Canada, up, up into um, the, the greater Toronto area, Richmond Hill actually, and I learned under Sandy Wood all about homotoxicology. And of course the books, the classic books of Reckwig uh, and homotoxicology, Pissinger's work on the ground matrix uh, and connective tissue regulation. These were big, uh, I would say, driving forces for me, understanding that if you looked at it from Reckwick's perspective, 
that as people get sicker, and this is a guy writing 40, 50 years ago, right? So we got to remember that. He's talking about mitochondrial disruption and how the more we get sick, the more we create more oxidative damage, the more we uncouple our ability to have oxphos relationships in, in the cell, the more diseased we get to the point where we become, you know, getting de-differentiated cells. So those were the really the big, big, I'd say, things that moved me was my mentors who happened to be, you know, a chiropractor and a naturopath chiropractor. Uh, even though I was a clinical pharmacist and taught at medical school, ended up teaching at medical school for you know 15 years and 17 years in pharmacy. Mm-hmm. I fully valued that side of, of uh, healthcare and that side of medicine. So those were the big movers for me. That's interesting. I, I see over your left shoulder, the, the book, the Cox to connection. Yes. And uh, I, I remember picking up that book and I think my first or second year of medical school, it was sitting, it was, it, I, you must have been there to speak at the, at the, um, right. the campus and there was some copies sitting around and I, I was blown away to understand those mechanisms of how plants can balance inflammation and, you know. Much safer way, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you hardly hear the term COX-2 very often anymore, you know, back, right. back right. then it was like all over, all over medicine and to, you know, the fact that we, you know, you pointed out things like turmeric and it was, it was mind opening for me and, and also encouraging to, to know that you can actually really get deep into the mechanisms of natural medicine and can, and, and understand how they work versus more of this sort of uh, practice where um, we're just more kind of talking about broad sweeping actions. Yeah, I think that gets dangerous. That's supposed to be like um, allopathic application of natural products, right? Like, here's your protocol. And I, I real when I, I'm obviously I'm the educational co-chair at A4M. I'm, you know, I'm big on educating physicians. And I really want them to understand what is going on in their body. What is the the system's biology dysfunction that's going on? And as our topic today, neuroinflammation, it's at the center of everything. I mean, they're, they're big issues, whether you're a diabetic or you've got a chronic neurodegenerative disorder or it's a mood disorder, it's, it's sitting there. And so I think, you know, it's really important that when you understand how things work, you can understand what tool to apply to correct it. But if all you do is have this kind of top line knowledge and think you're going to get this protocol and just stamp it out for everybody, I don't know. I, 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 think, I think we're better than that. I think we want to really strive to be more than that. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen um, some of your work with like the the, um, metabolic code work and how you have really looked at how the systems interrelate. And I think that is sort of what separates an understanding of biology, understanding of pathophysiology is when, you know, you can step out of like a, a silo, and, and, and look at the, the inter, interrelationship. And like today, you know, I think we we're going to talk really about that gut brain connection and just brain inflammation connection. Yes. And so, so important. Yeah. So maybe we could just set a little bit of this discussion up because I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of complexities and my listeners, you know, are people who are really, uh, kind of advanced knowledge and, and health people who are struggling with conditions similar to the ones that we're talking about and right. also new practitioners. So people, 
have a basic understanding of what we're talking about. But I think, you know, maybe to hear some of the core components of this discussion, such as like, what are glial cells? And I think let's start with that. <laughs> well, I mean, microglial cells are basically the immune cells of your brain and they're supposed to be at rest. So your, your glial cells aren't supposed to be working very hard. The issue is, is when they get activated by some sort of stressor or trauma, and that could be, look, it could be vaccination in some population of people. It could be toxic metals. It could be a vector. It could be mycotoxins or mold. It could be stress that, that triggers it over time. But basically, it could be a head trauma, right? I mean, but basically when the microglial cells get turned on, so there are these immune trafficking cells saying there is trouble in the brain. When that gets turned on, the issue is that it starts to create a lot of oxidative damage. You, your body, your, your brain starts to produce a whole bunch of free radicals that really end up damaging your neurons. And it, with this neuronal death, you get the release of, of these particles from the neurons, things like laminin and neurolaminin, which then actually turn the microglial cells on more. So you get this vicious loop of neuroactivation that is triggering inflammatory signaling that is damaging neuronal tissue and causing what's called dendritic retraction, right? The dendrites retract in and can no longer signal. And then you're damaging these tissues perpetuating that damage. Okay, so um, when we kind of think about that, um, there's you know, sort of a scenario where people would think, well, you know, I thought the brain was, was protected <laughs> from uh, the rest of the body, right? We, you know, we, we thought it was sort of like sealed off. Yeah, so, right. You know, can we talk about that and how that's yeah. Well, that's so appropriate because you know what? You have three critical barriers in the body, right? You have the blood-brain barrier, you have the epithelial lining of the intestine, and you have the endothelial lining in the inside of your arteries. All of them are one cell layer thick, mm. just one cell layer thick. And so, um, as we so things can pass through the the barriers, like the blood-brain barrier, as it gets damaged under inflammatory response in your body. So your blood-brain barrier gets leaky. One of the classic ones, I don't know if you ever heard of Sam Queen, but Sam Queen was a big forerunner in mercury toxicity and showed that as you know, toxicity due to metals went up, the leakiness of the blood-brain barrier also went up. And so you would, or you would measure that through looking at uh, beta-2 microglobulin, right? So if beta-2 microglobulin, it goes above two. Now you know that, that there's some porousness to that blood-brain barrier. Uh, and, and so the big one that I try to get people to understand today is the concept of lipopolysaccharide being one of the big insults to the brain because it crosses the blood-brain barrier. The problem with lipopolysaccharide is it can, it can be absorbed through the cell and can trigger inflammatory activity that will turn your glial cells on. And you also have receptors for lipopolysaccharide on those blood-brain barrier cells. So it can hit the receptor and start to turn on that inflammatory response. And 
Why is lipopolysaccharide so important? Because it comes from the gut. And this isn't even talking about the whole enteric nervous system and the gut brain connection you know, with the nervous system. This is just the straight effect of circulating endotoxin. You know, I remember seeing the first circulating endothelial cell that was stained that was showing that it released uh, inflammatory compounds. And what did that tell us? That's a metastatic model for endothelial dysfunction or for heart disease. Same thing with your other barriers. You know, when you're releasing these kind of compounds and they're traveling distally, they can they can attach and then they start to trigger their havoc. So the blood brain barrier gets compromised. Yeah. So that, that's really interesting because, um, you know, we think about the origins of LPS and, you know, it's from the cell walls of bacteria, right? Right. So the original original research on brain inflammation was actually infectious, right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, now we think of LPS and, and, and really the issue with LPS is, you know, as your, as your gut is getting compromised, meaning you could have reduced blood flow to your gut. Maybe you're diabetic and because your blood pressure's up, you're not getting enough blood flow to your gut. That can kill the bad bug. That can kill the bugs. So bacteria can die off. And your liver and lymph are normally supposed to filter lipopolysaccharide. Mm -hmm. But what they've what they've you know discovered is that the it's interesting, right? The higher the lipopolysaccharide in circulating, for example, the more the symptoms of metabolic syndrome occur. Wow. You, you become pre-diabetic. You become pre-hypertensive. You become obese. You you know you have all the complications of diabetes and that's look that's the american diabetes journal right american diabetes association journal published that that a decade ago and we're still not figuring out how to help diabetics have a a, a healthier microbiome right uh and and so now we're seeing that lipopolysaccharide attaches to, to nearly every tissue and organ so when you think of multi-organ failure and heart failure so other organs are failing that the current theory is, is it's because of the amount of lipopolysaccharide is attaching not just to the heart and causing NF-kappa B to get activated, which triggers COX-2 and triggers other inflammatory cytokines to create damage in the tissue. But it's attaching to the liver. It's attaching to the kidneys. You know, it's attaching to peripheral tissues and, and wreaking havoc, including on the brain. So lipopolysaccharide, even though it's not infectious, uh, it, it's a it's a big issue, and you know you know I kind of got on a journey of lipopolysaccharide. Is part of my institute in Ohio, we had a spectrum disorder clinic, and so we had you know kids with brains on fire, and so I was looking around trying to figure out well how can we put brains on fire out right? How do we downregulate microglial cells? So I started working on this nasal spray that um, was one ginsenicide called R3 ginsenicide because it had all this literature on downregulating microglial activity. And we ended up being able to put it in nasal, a nasal spray and give it to individuals. We got about 40,000 people in post-surveillance now where a whole variety of things from post-stroke to diabetes, memory loss, lots of different improvement because we're targeting that downregulation of glial cells due to, micro, uh, down, due to lipopolysaccharide. So that that's synapsin that you're. Synapsin. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I want to 
I want to spend some time talking about Synapse in, you know, in just a moment here because, um, you know, I've had some great clinical experience with that. And oh, good. It was a, it's just been a treasure of a find for a lot of patients. So I'm glad to hear that. That's thank great. Thank you for formulating that. And I want to spend some time with that in a little bit here. Sure. You know, it's funny. We have uh, all these, um, acronyms you know with these days with like mthfr and lps and just just for levity one of my my patients told me there's a really good one going around the internet about lps now and oh, yeah. it won't actually say it. i'll i'll abbreviate it little pieces of film <laughs> <laughs> yeah there you go that's kind of it i yeah. mean that, that's kind of it yeah. you know it, yeah it's it's you know, lipopolysaccharide for me, I started talking about it about 15 years ago and everybody was looking at me like, what are you talking about? And, and the literature was pretty clear that because the other term for lipopolysaccharide is endotoxin, right? Same same term. And but the literature was pretty clear even back then that lipopolysaccharide or circulating endotoxin was a reason for a lot of coronary events, a lot of you know cerebrovascular events. And, you know, um, and, and look, infection, you think of the Lyme patient or the Lyme related illness patient or the biotoxin patient uh, where they are getting, you know, somewhat assaulted by viral bacterial loads. Um, you know, they have a, a ton of neurologic symptoms, right? Everything from seizure to panic to anxiety to, in, you know, insomnia, which insomnia in and of itself is a hyperarousal disorder of the brain which a lot of people don't realize. I mean, it, your brain is turned on too much, too long, which leads to neuroinflammation, which means your glial cells are going to be jacked up. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's all these threads that kind of lead us back to why neuroinflammation is so important because we see all these symptoms clustering together. Yeah, so um, there's another kind of cell to talk about, I think, that maybe might be connected a little bit more to some of the other symptoms like astrocytes. Are they involved with this, um, this inflammation as well? Um, oh, absolutely. Astrocytes are really responsible for driving a lot of immune signaling uh, as well. So, you know, it's another kind of partner in, in the, the kind of that, that either that orchestra of keeping your brain from accelerating damage, right? Because as soon as you turn on inflammation, uh, neuroinflammation, uh, you, you know, you start to create uh, signaling that's going to do things like shrink your hippocampus, cause dendrites to retract. And so the astrocytes are intimately involved in signal and crosstalk with uh, glial cells. And also like uh, glutamate, right? Um, oh, Russell Blaylock's work, Excitotoxins, right? That book 20 plus years ago, that was a great book. So it's that whole thing of excessive glutaminergic drive leads to, you know, the calcium ion channels and in the NMDA bridge breaking and creating excitatory chemistry in that neuron. So glutamate, histamine's the other big one. Nobody's talking about histamine in the brain. So as soon as somebody tells me, oh, I sleep great on histamine. I know their brain is on fire, right? And, and histamine is way more than mastocytosis, right? That's the other big term going out now. It, it's literally what's happening with people is their, their histamine gene expressions being turned on virtually in all their cells. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I think it's important for people 
to kind of get this feeling of understanding that you've got excitatory neurochemistry and inhibitory neurochemistry in your brain and excitotoxic responses like phenylethylamine, take it, you know, you know, excessive phenylethylamine stimulation causing perseveration. Um, that is excitatory and excitotoxic just as histamine and glutamate is. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's phenomenal. I mean, I think, you know, when you, if you've ever treated like, like all of us have helped people, you know, who are struggling with, with insomnia, um, you know, it's, it, if the traditional things don't work, um, you know, you have to kind of look at neuroinflammation as, as a cause. You know what? I, I'll never forget this one patient who came to me and basically only slept two hours a night for years. And I did everything. Right. I'm giving her all the stuff to do for sleep. And hey, you got to meditate and, you know, yeah, calm down. You know, all that stuff. I end up listening to her one day and I said, so what do you do before you go to bed? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I just want to want you to go to bed. And then she said, well, you know, every night I have a little sandwich because I'm hungry. I eat a ham sandwich. And I went, eat a ham sandwich before you go to bed every night. Let's do a food allergy panel. Hmm. We do a food allergy panel on what hits pork. Oh, wow. Yeah. I take her off the ham. She sleeps. Yeah. Yeah. That and there were some other ones too. But the big thing was, you know, no, it wasn't gluten in her case, even though now it's almost always gluten as a piece of the inflammatory puzzle for the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but in her case, I got her off the ham and all of a sudden she's sleeping through the night. And I think we have to appreciate that fact that reactions that are going on anywhere in the body, but in particular in the gut, have a dramatic effect on what's going on in the brain, right? That's that whole enteric nervous system and the crosstalk between the gut and the brain and the brain back to the gut. And when we have excessive excitatory stimulus, right? We're ramping up them at those enterochromaffin cells because of excess sympathetic drive and, and, and excitotoxic drive. We're going to create mast cell activation, create gut permeability, create more lipopolysaccharide because as the gut gets permeable, you're going to make more LPS and you're going to make more TMAO, which are both going to be very inflammatory. A TMAO being trimethylamine oxide, uh, which comes from people overeating meat. And look, you know, the, uh, you know, eating ketogenics very popular these days, but there's plenty yeah. of literature. It says if you go with ketogenic too long, it contributes to increasing circulating endotoxin. Yeah. And I think, you know, I want to introduce or kind of refresh a concept about neuroinflammation. So just so I'm clear, but I, it seems as though, you know, the body is designed to, to deal with an occasional insult of this form, like, you know, the brain is, I should say, right? where, you know, the, the microglial cells get activated and stabilize, um, stabilize the environment right and then but it's the it's the it's the that this this stream of insult is on 24 7 in these scenarios well no that's that whole concept like the new term which i wish i invented this term <laughs> new term <laughs> i really do i'd be the best it's going to be the topic my next metabolic code book metabolic code 2.0 is going to have mm -hmm. this in it it's going to have the term right in the cover metaflammation Okay. metabolic inflammation metaflammation is exactly what you said your body is built to have an acute response rectify that response 
and restore to homeostasis. Mm -hmm. now, the problem is, is that if we get into a chronic response, meaning I'm under stress, I'm not sleeping, I'm eating the wrong foods, which basically way too many people eat too much, they eat too often, they eat too late, they're under a lot of stress, they don't get enough sleep, and they don't move. Mm -hmm. Before we start talking about pesticides and metals and being bit by a tick and all, all the other stuff that we look at, right? I mean, you know, let's face it. And then they're put on drug therapy that disrupts the microbiome. That's my latest uh, database that we're putting together right now is drug-induced microbiome disruption. Wow. So the point being is, is that when you don't resolve the inflammation, and, and this is in lots of papers now, all right? So this is not the world according to Jim. <laughs> there's, 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 there's several steps that start to happen. One is you start to make more bad lipids. So as soon as people start making bad lipids, you start seeing lots of ox LDL, oxidized LDL. For those of you who don't know ox LDL, oxidized LDL, your myeloperoxidase goes up, which is the enzyme that drives it. Um, you make more lipoprotein little a, you make more lipo, uh, uh, apolipoprotein B. When you see a shift from relatively healthy lipids to really nasty lipids, you're probably in a state of metaflammation. The next thing that happens, and I bet you see this all the time, that you, you raise your hepcidin levels and it lowers your ferroportin levels. So what you see in practice is people with normal irons and no ferritin. And when they have no ferritin, they can't stimulate EPO. So they don't really have a healthy red blood cell count and their platelets are tending to trend well. And that's kind of a hallmark trait with metaflammation, normal iron in the face of almost no ferritin. So they can't store it because the inflammation has altered the signaling of how you store your ferritin. Wow. And, and ferritin also is uh, linked to glutathione, right? Um, as far as glutathione production. Exactly. And, and you, you, you have to have adequate ferritin for thyroid hormone to bind into the inner cell membrane and actually activate oxfos. I mean, how you burn fat. And so it, so that's step one. The next step is, is that insulin receptors get turned off. One of the books I wrote, oh, where is it? On this side, that side, that book up top, that book was called Diabetes and Cancer, Epidemiologic Links and Molecular Evidence. That was a chapter I wrote in that book. It was a medical textbook. And it turns out that as people get more metabolically inflamed, their insulin receptors either retract or become sluggish. Mm -hmm. And what happens then is, is you get into what's called the Warburg effect, where you're passively bringing glucose in, you're creating a bunch of lactate and pyruvate, the cell gets acidotic, you only make two molecules of ATP, and now you're fatigued. And your muscles are achy. So that's the next step that happens in, in the metaflammation model. And then it starts to get really interesting. You get bone loss because of it. And we're seeing more and more men that are osteopenic, where it used to be mm -hmm. exclusively a Asian or small blue-eyed Caucasian woman that would be, you know, with osteoporosis. Now we're seeing it in both sexes. But more importantly, the last phases of this process of metaflammation is the loss of neuroplasticity and neuroregeneration. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece to it is mitochondropathies, where we are where the mitochondria become ragged 
and we lose our NAD to NADH ratio that keeps our cells making energy. And of course, when your NAD to NADH ratio goes down and say you get hit with a virus, just like what happened in the pandemic, your, your PPAR enzymes can't activate and now you have cytokine storms. So with people with metaflammation, they end up with a dramatic push towards inflammatory cytokines, both in the brain and peripherally, that are uncontrolled, damaging tissues, and losing neuroplasticity and neuroregenerative capacity. That, and, and that term is associated with the term inflammaging, inflammatory aging. So metaflammation, inflammaging. I don't care who you are, what you're struggling with, at the cellular level, that's what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because as you're talking through that that continuum, that process, it you know it, it really does bring to light the people who you know really suffered with severe COVID, you know, and and the setup and the the precursor to that, and then also some of the things with long, that we're seeing with um, long haulers or long COVID. Absolutely. You know, the, before we leave this kind of. Uh, background aspect, I would like just to kind of, you've talked about so many drivers of this, this, the meta inflammation. Um, when you just talked about, um, I want to just run it by you um, because there's a lot of uh, information out there about um, just chronic viruses also being a driver for neuroinflammation. So we have, you know, HHV6, CMV, um, e I don't know if EV, yeah. Sure. So this is this is also impacting neuroinflammation, correct? Absolutely. So once again, like when I think of neuroinflammation, I think it can be a vector. So a vector could be a virus. It could be a protozoa because protozoas can actually even do it. It could be bacteria. It could be a fragment, right? It could be fungus, right? You can think of people with candida. They have a lot of neuroinflammation. And the reason they have a lot of neuroinflammation is they they make a lot of acetaldehyde which ends up triggering phenolic compounds in their brain versus making neurochemicals, which triggers a lot of kinurinic acid, quinolinic acid, beta-carboline, um, salsolinol, all these different chemicals start getting made in your brain when you have candida. And that's why you're foggy and you're histaminic and you're dermatographic and you end up with food allergies, um, you know, as, as part of that milieu. So it can be vectors, it could be toxins, it can be heavy metals, so I really think, now the one thing I'll say is, is sometimes when people have, say for example, uh, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, SIRS, right? So sometimes when they have SIRS, they may test on an antibody test or a whole bunch of stuff. But what it is, is that their, their whole immune system is kind of running in chaos. And we may or may not be getting truly positive, you know, false, we could be getting false positive information. And so I, I always try to define, well, where are they at in their continuum of their immune system so that we're not chasing down a, a potentially a bunch of phantom bugs, um, whether it's viral um, or, or, or the Lyme related, you know, Ehrlichia, Babesia, Bartonella, you know, experience. Um, let's make sure that we're not in an immune system that's just ultimately confused cool that down by getting rid of some of the inflammagens that have been produced, the metalloproteinases and such, and, 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 and the inflammasomes, so like NLRP3 and that kind of stuff, like suck that stuff out of there. And then let's see where your test lands. 
And uh, so that's kind of the way I've um, over the last few years have looked at that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me um, from a standpoint of the, the immune system being confused and sort of just reacting and firing at everything, you know, it's and and sort of trying to figure out um, what what um, you know what is the actual vector and and trying to stabilize. And so that makes a lot of sense that in those scenarios that you know the goal would be to just like really help the immune system be stable and balanced. Yes, you know it, it reminds me also of like you know you see sometimes people do those uh, food allergy tests or food food you know like food sensitivity testing and i'm not a big huge fan of those but you know sometimes you'll see that all like 72 foods will be off the charts reactive and it's impossible you know for that person to have you know true reactions to that many foods but it does show you that their their immune system or their their gut or something is inflamed right yeah i think that the information is valuable and where i do like kind of the innovations now in kind of that area of food testing is more along the IgG4 epitope mm -hmm. and the C3BD epitope, like the, that uh, screening of the complement side of the reaction to the food, because that's where it gets a lot more granular and less false positives. But if you're just going off of IgG, it, it, it's the wild, wild west. That's just not going to give you what you need other than, like you said, you pretty know somebody's got a leaky gut. They got gut permeability issues. Um, and, you know, when I talked about gut permeability issues back in 1987, people were looking at me like, what are you talking about? Gut permeability. Just lucky to have a great naturopath teacher who, who taught in Baden-Baden in Germany. They were talking about leaky gut in the 70s, you know. And, and so the, the point being is I like that IgG4 because it's produced in order to block the IgE epitope. Mm -hmm. So it. It's, it's an interesting um, characteristic. And the C3BD, I think, is interesting. And, and so I do them. I, I do them as a part of the plan only because what you know, most of the people that you and I are working on, they have got so much inflammation. If you think of them as being a trough of inflammation, I'm just trying to figure a bucket that I can pull out of there and, and you know, dump some of that inflammation yeah. out of the body. And so whether that's using, you know, okra as a binder um, or do I detoxify with metals? Um, do I take them off of foods that are really at least the big foods, right? The ones we know are a problem. Uh, you know, started doing that kind of low allergen, anti-inflammatory, modified low carb diet. You know, God, that was a 1986 variant that we've continued to refine. And then naturally, sometimes people need to be on a higher fat diet, depending on what their situation is. If it's a, you know, a cancer or epilepsy or something like that. But, but the report, but the point being is we kind of got to look and figure out what, what can we do? I mean, the way, like you mentioned my metabolic code platform, the whole genesis of that was to try to point people in the direction of where do you need to start right. to get somebody to start to feel better? Because right. in the end, you know, people come to us and they need help. They've been to a bunch of people. They don't feel good. They spent mm -hmm. a ton of money already. And for me, it's really important to get wins quick like to gain their confidence back in the process and mainly to give them hope. And I think if you're not looking at neuroinflammation as, a, as like at the center of what you should be trying to do, because when you call people down, they're less panicked, right? They're not as swollen. They're not as, they don't have as much lymph congestion. They sleep better. You know, all those things I think are key. 
Yeah, I love that approach. I mean, I think, you know, you, there's so many problems you can help stabilize. And then while you're working on the, you know, kind of core issues. Um, right. And, you know, so I think it's really, it shows whenever I hear an experienced clinician talk about that, it's really validating because, um, you know, people have to feel better and feel some hope to be able to work on the core issues. hundred percent, man. I can tell you right now, I know so many people that people always say to me, how do you, you know, you don't advertise. You, you, I've never advertised for my practice, not once. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was processing close to 400 people a week in Cincinnati. Wow. So we had big clinics and, you know, and, and I, you know, and people say, how do you do it? And I said, it's real simple. I look for where I can get a win in the first visit. Yeah. I, I want to get somebody to feel better and them to feel hope. And then we're going to work on the deep part stuff together and they'll commit. People will commit to get better, but you got to show them, you know what you're doing. Yeah. That's interesting. But one of the legends in naturopathic medicine, um, I don't know if you remember the late Dr. Bill Mitchell. Sure. Um, he, that was his, one of his tenants. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, you know, I think there'd be, it'd be good to talk a little bit before we conclude about any kind of other lab testing or evaluations that can be done to, to sort of prove that neuroinflammation is, is, is there. I mean, I think sometimes it's like you've seen enough of it. You, you, you can call it by just the symptoms and, but um, a lot of times people are looking for like a lab test or sure. Is there, are there any markers that can be run like on basic panels and. Yeah. I mean, I like, look, I think if you look at something like MPV, mean platelet volume, hmm. mean platelet volume is tied to metaflammation. So as mean platelet volume goes up and you're approaching the upper limits of normal or you go out of bounds, you can be sure that there's a metabolic inflammatory response. And look, once there's metaflammation, neuroinflammation's involved by default, it's, hmm. it's there. Um, so that's one easy test that you can look at is an MPV. Mm-hmm. The other thing I really like is looking at white blood cell differentials and nobody really pays attention to white blood cell differentials, but it's clear that when your monocytes, eosinophils and basophils are up, I mean, when basophils go above one, you, you have elevated IL-6. I mean, it's gonna be there. And interleukin-6 is one of the big players in neuroinflammation, right? I mean, that when you upregulate IL-6 in the brain, it triggers Claudin-2 in your, in your epithelial cell in your intestine, right? So as your IL-6 goes up, it signals that epithelial cell in the intestine to activate the Claudin-2 receptor. And Claudin-2 gets upregulated, and that's what breaks the tight junctions between the epithelial cells, that, that mesh, that tight junction glycoproteins wither and fall as IL-6 upregulates and Claudin-2 gets activated. So a real good one for that is basophils over one. And then, of course, if your monocytes, eosinophils and basophils really add up, the percent adds up to above. I used to try to get people to get to seven. It's nearly impossible nowadays because everybody's so darn reactive. But if I can keep them down around nine, they're in good shape. But as you approach the teens, as people have a 14, like an 11 monocyte, a five eosinophil, you know, eosinophils, they used to be out of bounds at 2.5. Mm. And then so many people got reactive that they, they moved it up to seven. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like everybody's got an eosinophil problem. So we'll just raise the level to make everybody normal. 
which is the problem with labs, right? I mean, yeah. what is more? Because um, it floats depending how sick the whole population is. Yeah. So the so the point being is MEBs I think are really great. Now you can order things like OxLDL. You could get a deoxyguanosin because for me, deoxyguanosin is probably one of the most important markers to look at because you know 80HDG tells you if you're damaging your DNA, and and if you're damaging your DNA, you are sending signals from the brain down that there is an infl there's inflammation going on. Uh, so that's an easy one to do. And then some simple things, I think, you know, just just looking at, you know, you can look at IL-6, you can look at MMP9, you can look at VEGF. I mean, any of these um, markers uh, can show you and you can get them on a normal blood panel. I mean, you can order VEGF from just about anybody. And it's kind of interesting. If VEGF is really high, it's kind of colitis kind of stuff, right? And risk for colon cancer. If it's really low, that's where the immune system's really compromised and you've got that inflammatory uh, chronic inflammatory response mm. activity that is being driven by the brain melanocyte stimulating hormone right mm -hmm. it, it helps to kind of characterize melanocortin uh in your brain and uh, you know so if you get an mesh down in the 20s or below typically that means your brain's on fire mm -hmm. is that a direct correlation no but there, you know there's you know, we're still kind of I would say in the primitive state. I mean, one of the things I did about, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago was I measured people's, I did what was a, a functional uh, MRI on people. And basically you, you label, I labeled their brain uh, with diazepam. And what I showed was their glutamate to acetylcholine activity, right? Mm -hmm. because as glutamate goes up, acetylcholine goes down, I'm going to, I'm going to have memory loss. Mm -hmm. So I took five men, five women cross matched 55 to 70 years of age none on medications, but all complaining of some short-term memory issues. And all I did for 30 days was I gave them an antioxidant vitamin and I gave them phosphatidylcholine. Okay. That's all I did. Yeah. Guess what happened in 30 days on a rescan? The choline went up, glutamate went down, mm. and eight out of 10 people said they had a significant improvement in their in the, the way their, their brain felt and the way they were processing their memory. So, yeah, yeah it's, there's some really cool stuff you can do that's pretty simple. So that's if you can image and do some things. But the lab tests, I'll tell you what, look around. I mean, obviously, the other one, it's really simple. When you have elevated insulin, you know, a high insulin is going to mean there's a lot of inflammation systemically in an individual. Yeah, yeah. Well, so getting to you're kind of talking about some of the things you've been involved with helping with neuroinflammation. So uh, I'm glad you said that, like, one of the things you like to do is help people feel better in, in kind of a, the short term as you're working on all these core issues. Um, that brings to mind um, the synapsin. And if you could talk us through that formula a little bit, because sure. there's, there, I think there's a few more aspects to it that I'd love to hear about um, sure. why that, is that kind of your neuroinflammatory go-to? Well, I mean, so, you know, basically what happened was uh, I, I was at the University of Cincinnati teaching uh, a, a course called Survey and Natural Medicine. A lead professor of herbology from Beijing University was visiting. And he sent me, threw, threw me these pills, and he said, hey, this is good for the brain. And it was RG3 in a little pellet. 
and I, I and I kind of looked at him and went, oh, yeah, what do you know? You know, I'm this, you know, I'm teaching this. I'm I'm hot stuff, right? Young guy. So, you know, I'm you know, totally blew it off. Well, then I'm starting to work five years later uh, in, in our autism and spectrum disorder side of our institute with my lead doctor, Dr. Pelletier. And uh, I said, I got to find out how to how to turn off microglial cells. So I start doing primary lit review and this RG3 keeps coming up and I'm going, why do I, why do I remember this? I go in my, my closet at home and I still got the bottle from five years ago, RG3 ginsenicide. Hmm. Turns out it's the most rare ginsenicide and you have to ferment it. So it's very expensive to get this raw material. It has to be pharmaceutically fermented to get 90 plus percent pure R3 ginsenicide. And, and so that then the net of this was, was that it's, and it's the main ingredient, right? It's it, what it's doing is it's, it literally has the effect of immune trafficking. It, it turns off the uh, glial cell activation, but it stimulates neuroregeneration at the same time. So it stimulates BDNF now, and it turns the glial cells off at the same time. So people, and I just was on a phone call with a lady today, 67 year old woman complaining of memory issues, lots of stress in her life. And she's like, this really helped me. I mean, I'm feeling a difference one month later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it's because it's very specific. It improves sodium ion channel transduction. So you get better signaling at the cell membrane. It down regulates NMDA. It protects the NMDA calcium bridge. It neutralizes glutaminergic drive. These are all things that have been shown about R3 ginsenicide. Mm-hmm. So it basically why I was interested in it is it played a, a, almost a harmonic chord of the problems that ensue once you turn the glial cells on. Mm-hmm. Then we added nicotinamide riboside to it. Yeah. And, and the reason for that was to fuel the neuron, right? The neuron needs NAD. And it turns out people go, oh, I just use NAD. Well, if you give NAD by IV, it ends up having to get turned into NR, then recirculated to NAD. And it's the same thing if you give NMN. And NMN has to get turned into NR to be used. Uh, so that's, you know, you know, that's kind of the importance of the NAD. Um, and then the third piece is, uh, of course, just using methylcobalamin, but, uh, because what we find out is that you know, energetically, you know, as people are getting older or under a lot of neurologic damage, they use up a lot of their B12 and we want to make sure that that gets on board. And then we can alter that by adding things like alpha GPC, which of course is a, you know, alpha glycerol phosphatidylcholine that, you know, gets crosses the blood brain barrier really well. And of course doing it intranasally gets right in there. The reason we're doing that is to build acetylcholine, make growth hormone happen and create neuroregeneration. So it's a, it's a pretty, I, I have to admit the first time that we, the, the big novel thing about that was we figured out how to solubilize it and make it into an intranasal spray because nobody had figured that out before. Yeah. And, you know, I think for, for me, like I said, there's been several uh, patients so far that I've used it. I personally used it when I was living in a moldy home. Oh, wow. It, it yeah. really helped me um, because I, I was having that kind of chronic fog. Um, right. From, being exposed to all that mycotoxin and, you know, a blast of that um, just helped me kind of get some clarity and focus. Um, so, yeah, I, I look to, uh, I look forward to continue. We have 
I, you know, God bless the the compound pharmacies. Um, you know, they're just doing such amazing work that are putting putting that together, putting um, formulas together. Like we use Custler's and Clark's Pharmacy out here. They 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 formulate the synapsin for us. Right. Um, well, I know you're really busy, and I don't want to take go over our time here, but I'd like to just kind of close by just like maybe one or two take-home messages from you and then just to hear anything that you'd like the audience to know about um, as far as what you're you know kind of what you're focusing on right now and what you sure. know your how they can follow you sure so uh, obviously they can go to jimlabelle.com or metaboliccode.com and uh, I got a bunch of other social media stuff that I got to be honest I'm 61 years old so I'm still learning how to do all that stuff yeah um, um, I, I, luckily, I've been using Synapsin, so I still got a couple brain cells firing, but yeah. uh, it's kind of a generational thing there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you're doing really good. <laughs> yeah, I'm working it. But, uh, but the, uh, so, I mean, the, the big takeaway for me is, is um, be relentless in your pursuit for the health that you deserve. That, that, you know, it's work. It's work to be well, but it's worth it. You know, you don't you don't have a fine home without working on it. You don't have a car that runs well without working on it. And it's really your responsibility. And us as practitioners, it's our responsibility to deliver the goods on that, too. And I know no, we're not perfect. We're going to have our ups and downs. We're going to sh fall short here and there. But if we really focus on how do I help that person, let's get them feeling a little better so I can get them that hope man, it makes things work so much better. And that's, that's my big takeaway. And, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, eating better, super important, managing your stress, super important. When I say eating better, it's obvious. Watch the sap fat, watch the sugar, eat more fiber, don't eat too late. Don't overeat, especially if you're only like walking a half hour a day for your exercise. You don't need a pre-workout, intra-workout and post-workout drink. You know, you, you know, be, be responsible with that. And then the big thing I'm working on now is just kind of the launch of uh, this whole metabolic code platform, because what we're doing is we're taking in the information of how a person feels, what their labs are, how they exercise, what drugs they're on, and so that we can actually see and cluster people into what's really working for this type of person. So almost creating like a digital twin for them mm -hmm. that is, a, is allowing us to really help practitioners understand what's your best shot at getting somebody to get well. Uh, and so I'm working pretty hard on um, just continuing that, that methodology of uh, systems biology, breaking things into five major archetypic groups. Uh, so it's easy to explain to the patient and it's also easier for the practitioner to kind of get moving, especially if they're new at this. You know, if you're if you're no war horse at it like I am, I mean, you know, wh whether or not you need this, it could be probably questionable. You know, right? It's yeah. uh, but I, but I would say that even for me, I use it and it, it streamlines my time. So those are the things I'm working on. I got two books coming out this year. I got uh, Cracking the Metabolic Code 2.0, uh, and then I'm I'm actually finishing a book on optimized. Uh, performance for athletes because I do a lot of work in addition to with sick folks, um, you know, clinical director, pro football hall of fame, performance health program. And I work with teams and players and all five major league sports. So I got a performance book that's really getting people to understand that biomechanics and biochemistry can never not intersect. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a healthy biochemistry, it's hard to have healthy biomechanics. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. Well, with, um, if, if you're up, I'd love to have you come back sometime to talk about some of the, the book and some of the other topics you're involved with. Well, I would love to do it. So that was a bunch of fun today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jim. And, um, you know, we'll let you go, but, uh, uh, really appreciate you being here. This was, this was outstanding. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the one thing podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.